All right, so we're in 2 Peter today, which is towards the end of the New Testament. We're in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, 9, and 10. And I want you to go there so that you can find that in your scripture and look along with me. You ought to test everything that everybody who claims is of God's word. You ought to test it to God's word. And so that's the reason why it's important to bring your Bibles to church and other places. As you know, Peter has been writing about the Lord's coming again in power and glory. In fact, he, he writes that fairly significantly throughout this text of scripture that we're in. Uh, that was the main thrust of the second chapter of this epistle. And he also said in the first chapter of the epistle, we made known to you the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he starts the, the text off this way and he's going to follow that line all the way through. He says in chapter 2, verse 9, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Again, he's moving us toward this notion that the Lord is coming again. And the day of the Lord, he says in chapter 3, verse 10, is going to come like a thief in the night when the heavens, uh, then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. That's where we're going today in this text. And again, I just want you to see this progressive order that he's taking us on, helping us to recognize the Lord is coming again and he's coming in power and glory. And now Peter is challenging us to know that truth and to anticipate that truth. And as we'll talk next week, to live our life according to that truth. Because he's going to say, as we'll read next week, so what, ought to what kind of people ought you to be? If you know these things, how is that changing your life? Chapter 3 is the answer to this great question that scoffers are bringing up that Peter is acknowledging back in chapter 3 verse 4, where is the promise of his coming? In other words, you're hearing them say, you've been talking about his coming again. When is that going to happen? Where is he? Why has he not come back? And they're just kind of scoffing at that. Kay and I have been lifelong students of the Bible. We've known nothing other than to read and to study the Bible. We continue to do that on a regular basis, on a daily basis, just engaged in God's word. And we believe, fully trust everything in God's word from Genesis 1-1 all the way to Revelation 22, the, the 21st verse. Everything about it, we believe. We trust it to be God's infallible, inerrant word. And we particularly are given to the promises of God because there are great times in life where Significant troubles arise or grief sort of shatters us, sorrows come, and we just need to be reminded of those truths. So we cherish those and we hang on to those truths. We trust him in those. We're confident in God's promises, particularly those that are given to eternality, those promises that assure us of the future. Promises like what are given in John chapter 14, where the Lord says, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am there, you may be also. What a great promise that is. When life is taking you in all kinds of different directions, maybe sometimes the places you don't want to go, like Jesus said to Peter, this certainty comes about. The Lord is preparing a place and he will bring us to that place. And it is good. 
In Acts chapter 1, the angels were declaring to those who were watching Jesus ascend to the heavenlies, declaring, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking to heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. What a promise that is. Like you saw him go, he will come again. And we're convinced of the words of Revelation chapter 1 verse 7 and 8. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will well on account of him. Even so, amen, let it come. In chapter 1, verse 8, it says, I am the Alpha, the Omega, says the Lord. And this is what he says. He who is, who was, and is to come. What a promise that is. And so we're assured of the Lord's coming again, and we encourage people in that. There's hardly a time that I don't talk to somebody who has just faced the grief of the death of a loved one encouraging them to mourn, but mourn with hope. And I will often take them to the words of the Apostle Paul who is trying to encourage those in Thessalonica who are in those moments angst over the death of their loved ones. And he writes to them, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Just over and over in scripture, God just assures us of his coming again. That is our hope. Uh, Paul goes on to say in that text, therefore comfort one another with these words. Let your comfort be found there. there there's many reasons why we are discomforted in this wor world, but in God's word, be comforted. Uh, there is a new day coming. And yet, even though we know that, we cling to that, we know those promises are true, we ask, when is the Lord coming? Why has he not come? Why is he waiting so long? Now, to ponder those kind of questions is really to ask of God's timing. That happens often when we face hardships. When we grieve the death of a precious loved one, we begin to ask, Lord, why have you not returned yet? And during sorrow and loss and suffering and sickness, we tend to wonder why the Lord has not come before such calamities arise. Often recognizing how dangerous and fractured the world is, we experience disasters and rampage of war and all kinds of conflict around the world. We ask, when is he coming? Lord, when are you coming? And we probably all ask those questions, and that does not mean that we are scoffing at him. Instead, it is our expressing of our longing of Christ's return. The, the more you know about the promises of God, the more you long for them. The more you know about what God is offering to us in heaven, the more we want that. The more we anticipate the coming of the Lord, the more we're eager to see it and to experience it. And so today's passage is helping us to answer some of the questions, specifically those who are asking, when is the Lord coming about? And Peter's word speaks very specifically to that. He's speaking, yes, to those who are rejecting the promise of God, but he's also speaking to those who are encouraged by the promise of God. 
that he is coming again. Where is the Lord's coming? Here he's going to answer it. Chapter 3, verse 8, 9, and 10. Let's read it together. Peter says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And when the heavens will pass away with the roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So I want to talk today about three aspects regarding time of the Lord's return that I think we must understand. To walk in the fullness of Christ, have the great hope of Christ, I think we ought to understand the essence of time as Peter is describing it for us in this section of scripture. And first I'll say is this, that time is relative. I probably should have put a qualifier in that. Time is somewhat relative. Now certainly I know time is definitive. It is measurable or it is measured. We can point to something in the past, we can point to it in the present, and we can long for it in the future and say it's a specific time that is coming about. However, time is often relative, meaning that the rate in which people understand time passing depends on that person's reference of time. For example, when I was a young boy, my parents would throw a birthday party for me as they would all of our siblings. But things were a little bit different in the 1970s. So birthday parties that included inviting friends over did not happen every year. That was like an every three-year thing. It was just an unwritten known rule among all parents in the South, you don't have birthday parties every year in the 70s. Anybody remember those days? It's not like I was uh, deprived, all right? Everybody had the same thing going on, maybe. Uh, if not, you really had it well. I, I remember asking uh, you know, about a birthday party and the response would be, now you know last year you had a birthday party. It's like, duh, how could I ever forget that I had a birthday party last year and I was stupid for asking for a birthday party this year. Nobody has back-to-back -back birthday parties. But on one particular year, the famine of birthday parties was now over and it was harvest season, right? And so the invites went out and everybody scurried over to Kmart or Sears, Roebuck and brought pre presents. And we had the birthday cake, you know, that blue icing that would stain your teeth when you ate it. And they would also pass out cups of vanilla ice cream, which was absolutely the best because those cups of vanilla ice cream also came with a wooden spoon. And my older brother would gag when he would eat with those wooden spoons. There was something about the texture there. And that just brought a bonus to the whole birthday thing when you would see your older brother gag. So at one point, my parents scheduled a party and it was in that golden hour of 3 p.m. Thereabouts. I don't remember the exact time, but I just remember it was in the afternoon. It's a golden hour because you don't have to feed kids lunch and you don't have to feed them supper when it's like three o'clock. It's the perfect window of opportunity for a party. And I re vividly remember going to the kitchen to the clock that was on the wall oven. 
and looking at that analog clock and watching it. And every few minutes I would pass by that or I purposely go to that clock and look and think, how is this thing not moving? Is this birthday party going to ever come? It was like when the Lord helped Joshua, who is fighting the Amorites there in Gibeon, and he just held the sun and made it so that the, the daylight strategies that Joshua was doing to complete the defeat of the Amorites was, was given to him. The, the whole day was elongated. It was like that was my birthday and that, that party was, was being elongated. Now the Lord said there's never been a day before that, never gonna be a day after that, which that would happen. But that's exactly what it seemed like to me. It felt like somebody was holding the clock day, uh, holding the clock on that day. But obviously time did not stand still. Time did not even slow down. It stayed in its same way, but it was relative to me. It did not change on my birthday, but it very much felt like it was taking forever. Anybody had an experience like that? Generally, that happens when you're a kid. Because as you go older, time moves very fast, doesn't it? How many of you have been to Southside, Alabama? Everybody but those who live in Gadsden that say, I'm not crossing that bridge. I don't know what it is about that thing. Gadsdenites hate crossing the Southside Bridge. But uh, Kay and I live in Rainbow City, so we cross the Southside Bridge often. And we'll go over there and eat or visit with folks and just check things out, whatever. When we come back across the Southside Bridge and we're moving towards Rainbow City, and you pass through that intersection there at Horton Bend, you know what I'm talking about? Right, the uh, marina's there on the right and the left. And you pass that, it's like everybody passes through that intersection and then boom, stomps the gas and up that hill they charge. Nobody goes at the same speed. Everybody hammers down on that hill, going all the way up past Regency Point till they crest the top. That's what it's like when you're 50 years old. Somebody has stepped on the gas and just stomping it all the way up the hill. And according to those in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, it's like somebody never lets off the accelerator. The, the time just speeds up all the more. So although time is definitive, it's measured, it's perfect, the way we experience it changes, doesn't it? It depends on the seasons. It depends on the life stage. It, it, it depends on a whole lot. But I want you to hear this. If mortals sense difference depending on events and life stages regarding time. Consider how far off we are from the reality of what the immutable, timeless, immortal God of the universe who created everything spun it into order in order to make time for us to have in the world. Imagine what he knows about time that you and I don't know. Imagine how God's time, the definitive nature of time to the timeless God, imagine how perfect it is. God is timeless, therefore his understanding and knowledge and insight and accuracy regarding time is very much different from our own. And so in that way, Peter says, consider this, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. He assures us who think it's taking forever. When is the Lord coming back? He is assuring us that God is saying it won't be long now because he has the right understanding of time that you and I don't have. 
what we consider to be a long time, in this case, two millennia, God is saying, oh, it's just like a couple of days. In other words, from eternity, we will have a different mindset. In eternity, we will look back and we will say, man, that time was just a nanosecond in comparison to what we are experiencing in eternity. Time is relative. It is definitive, but it is in our understanding very relative. So we need to come to God's word and we need God who is timeless, who is perfect to share with us about what is happening, what's happening now and what is happening in the future. Secondly, I want you to know here's what God is doing in the midst of this time that seems so long for us. Now's the time of God's grace. Now's the time for God's grace. He says, uh, Peter does in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now here, Peter is explaining why the Lord has not returned. And it's very simple. He has opened time of grace. He's opened, as some would say, the age of grace, extending his patience towards us, not wishing that any would perish, but that all would reach repentance, come to the place of repentance. Can we just for a moment just bless God for his patience? Can we bless him for the patience that he has endured in my life and in your life and the collective lives of people all over the world. Think of all the blasphemous ways that people speak against God. Consider the timeless ways in which they have taken his name in vain over and over again. Contemplate how many of them ignore him or reject him. Ponder the rebellious nature of those unbelievers who though they are without excuse because God has given them the invisible attributes and the eternal powers and the divine nature evident in, in creation, they still reject him. Imagine the patience that God has thinking of the lawlessness of mankind when God has written his law in their heart, yet they have demanded rebelliousness and disobedience. Man, is God ever patient to people? Why? Because he's in a season of grace. He's in a time of grace. And you and I might say, when are you coming back, Lord? And he'll say, when I'm done extending the age of grace. When this time of grace is over, that's when I'll come back. For, for right now, I am giving with supernatural patience the opportunity for people not to perish, but in grace to come to repentance, to reach repentance by the measure of grace that I'm extending to them. God is seemingly slow, but he is seemingly slow for the salvation of people. I can't help but be mindful of Jim Garby. Uh, Carolyn Garby is a member here and I knew Jim and Carolyn from uh, the mortgage business and from her interaction here and Jim's as well periodically. But he grew up Roman Catholic, he was confirmed as a child and uh, stayed in that, that vein of religion all of his life. But Jim had had multiple complications in his health. And back in July, Carolyn informed me that he was not doing well. In fact, he was in the hospital and was losing blood somewhere. They couldn't quite figure out where that was happening. 
and he had multiple liters of fluid that was having to be drained off his lungs. Turned out he had disease in his lungs and in his body, cancer and some other complications. And she obviously was concerned for him physically and rightfully so. She was a loving wife, very caring, very affectionate towards him. But her deepest hurt was that he was not saved. He grew up with a works-based salvation, a religion that taught about works and traditions and rituals. It was not the gospel. It wasn't, it wasn't salvation that's derived from Scripture. It was what he had been taught all of his life. And so I would go by there and speak to him at his home and share the gospel with him. But hospice had already arrived when he was home from the hospital and they had heavily medicated him, and he would just kind of go in and out of sleep. Uh, he'd listen to me for a while and just doze right off, so like some of you are doing right now. <laughs> and Carolyn, of course, is praying. I knew she was in the kitchen listening to me as I was trying to share with him the gospel, and he'd just doze off. And I'd slip out, and I'd say, Carolyn, even if Jim made some kind of confession of faith. I wouldn't, I really wouldn't be confident in that in the state that he's in. I'm not sure all that he's hearing. Let me come back. And so I'd circle back a few days and he'd be in that same way. He'd, he'd talk to me for a while, then he'd doze off. And I'd share with conviction and he'd doze off. And finally it dawned on me, I said, uh, Jim, are you hurting anywhere? Huh? Couldn't hear. Hardly. Are you hurting anywhere? No. Have you been hurting anywhere? No. Why are you on all this medicine? I don't know. So I went to his wife. I said, Carolyn, I'm not a doctor. You need to confer with those people. But if he's not hurting, ask hospice to reduce the meds. Let him be alert. Even if it does hurt him, his soul is in jeopardy. Let's try it. So she called me back a couple of days later and she said, they've reduced the medicines, taken him off that. And he's not troubled by that. And he's much more alert. He's sitting in his chair. I said, I'm 10 minutes away. I'll be right there. I forewarned her by text. Now listen, I am in my work clothes. Some of you see me at Lowe's and you, you stop. You do a double take. You say, oh, I've never seen you in work clothes like that. Got a hat on, got a t-shirt on, got just ruined jeans and such. And I show up and we have a conversation and it's a gospel conversation, rich with God's truth. Opening the Bible and sharing it with him. And listen to me. He looked at me and he said, Randy, I've been watching you on YouTube for a long time. And I know you to be a man who teaches from God's word. And I'm listening to you. And I'm interested in what you've got to say. But don't push me. I said, Jim, I'm not here to push you. If I could push you to make a decision, that wouldn't be very good. <laughs> that wouldn't be kind of the kind of decision that would carry you with confidence into eternity. I'm not going to push you. I'm going to open God's word. I'm going to share God's word with you. And I'm going to let the spirit do the pushing. And I circle back around to him. Share the gospel with him again. Wondering how much he's actually hearing. He's looking at me. I'm repeating over and over. 
And he said, do you, you think you might email me? I can blow that up on my computer. I said, absolutely. It took me a couple of days to formulate the email I did. It was a gospel-oriented email. Talked a little bit about the difference between the gospel of the Bible and the teachings of the Catholic Church. I wanted him to see that from God's word, not from the traditions of the church. And just opening the scripture, and he and his wife would take those emails that he would read, and she would read to him, and they would talk about that. And I did that for a couple of different times. And then there towards the end, he was saying, I'm hearing you. I'm hearing what you're saying. And I'm close. Don't push me. I'm like, Jim, I'm not going to push you. And he said, as I was leaving one day, I'm, I'm sort of bored with time. Can, can you send me some emails or something? So I go online and you got to be careful about what kind of videos you would send to somebody. So I email him some video links of some people that I knew were convictional of the gospel and would teach the gospel truth. And I listened to their messages. I sent them over to him. And it was September when I sent him those. And on the 27th day of September, I got a text from his wife. She said, oh, Randy, this morning Jim said, Carolyn, come in here. I need to pray and to receive Jesus Christ as my Savior. She said, oh, okay, let me call Randy and ask him to come over. He said, we don't need Randy. We can pray, the two of us. <laughs> I'm like, bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. And that man was saved Amen. on the 27th day of September. Amen. And on the third day of November, he entered into the arms of Jesus. When you and I ask, why, Lord? Why have you not returned? Why don't you come back? Come, Lord Jesus, come. Here's what he's saying. I'm coming. I'm coming soon. But until I do, I'm extending patience, grace, not wishing that any would perish, but all would reach repentance. That's what he's doing. But then look at the third in your handout, this third point. Time is moving toward the day of the Lord. Time is moving to the day of the Lord. It's marching one day at a time. With each passing day, we're another step closer to that awesome day of the Lord. He says in verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Now let me just point out four phrases that I think are significant in this verse for us today. Number one, the day will come. Regardless of what people believe or don't believe, an, eternity, an eternal reality is forthcoming the day of the Lord will come. It's a day coming. Regardless of what you think about it, your neighbor thinks about it, some pundit thinks about it, some naysayer thinks about it, irregardless, the day of the Lord will come. What a truth we need to lock into there. And then he says the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. 
In other words, the day will surprise and alarm and horrify and be disastrous for those people who have rejected God's grace while he was extending patiently to them that grace in order that they might reach repentance. One day, Peter heard Jesus giving a warning exactly like this about his return. And he repeated that warning, and now Peter just constantly has picked up that mantle and just continues to pass that on to us. Jesus said, and according to Matthew's recording, the 24th chapter, therefore stay awake, for you do not know what day the Lord is coming, your Lord is coming. But know this, if the master of the house had known what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake. And would have not let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And he said it would happen quick, as far as the, as quickly as the lightning flashes in the sky from east to west. It would happen so fast, so surprisingly fast. Those words penetrated Peter's heart in such a magnanimous way that he could not get that thought off his mind. So he just writes it repeatedly wanting people to know. This is the final letter that Peter is writing to the church. And what's the main thing he wants them to know? The Lord is coming back. Don't listen to the scoffers. The Lord is coming back. And he will come back quickly. It would be like a thief in the knife in a su- night in a surprising way. And then he says the, that the, the whole earth and the universe is going to be destroyed. So God is going to destroy everything, every material thing by fire. And it will be like a roar. Have you ever heard a roaring fire? I'm not talking about the crackling of a campfire. I'm talking about there's a house fire and it is roaring. Have you ever heard that? Boy, that is fearful, isn't it? That's an alarming place to be. There's just an overwhelming sense of power in that place. A consuming fright comes upon us. One day, God is going to ignite and destroy everything that is today. In fact, he says the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. Now consider the magnitude of that truth. God will burn up everything in Etowah County. He will burn up everything in the state of Alabama. He will burn up everything in the United States. He will burn up everything on the North American continent. He will burn up the planet Earth. And he will burn up the Milky Way galaxy and the local group of galaxy and the Virgo supercluster and the expanse of all the observable universe and beyond where countless galaxies and stars and celestial bodies span across the billions of light years. God will destroy it all. Everything, everything will be destroyed, burned and dissolved. Particles, which are the building blocks of everything that we hold and possess and touch will be dissolved. I'm talking about atoms and subatomic particles like protons and neutrons and, uh, and electrons and even smaller constituents like quarks and, and leptons. They will suddenly and purposefully give away at God's command and totally dissolve. Jesus is holding all things in his hand and when he lets go, it will go. God says that that day is coming when everything will be burned away and dissolved. And in that, the Lord will expose everything. The earth and the works that are done on on it will suddenly be exposed. 
There will be no hiding on that terrible day. Suddenly, without warning, except what God has given to us in his word or with his very mouth of the mouth of the prophets, everything and everyone will be completely consumed by the all-penetrating eye of God and his holy, glorious light. What an awesome day. For those who have rejected Jesus Christ as mediator between God and man, God is going to expose every work and every word ever committed or said, measuring it to the perfect standard by which he demands us to live holy lives. And everybody will fall desperately short. Without a defender, Jesus, the Savior, there will be no defense against the magnitude of sins accounted against those who are unregenerate people. Oh, but those who have been made new in Jesus Christ by his grace, those whose sins have been washed and the righteousness of God imputed in us in Christ Jesus, what a difference for us that day will be. It'll be awesome in the genuine sense of the word in a remarkable way. So let me conclude with this reminder. Time seems relative, but there is a definitive time in which this will end. God's perspective is very different from our own. Now's the time for God's grace and he's patiently calling you to repentance and to salvation. Hey, if you've got your Bibles, let's flip over real quickly to Romans chapter 2. I'm 60 seconds from landing this message. Romans chapter 2. In verse 4, here's what the Bible says. Do you presume on the riches of the kindness and the forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, that is an unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. That day is coming. We're in an age of grace, a time in which God is long-suffering. He's been patient with us for 2,000 years, not wanting anyone to perish, but in his grace for you to reach repentance. I'm praying today will be that day for you. I don't know when the day is over with. I know there's a definitive day in which God's mercy will no longer be extended. I know that day is coming. I know it's quicker than it was yesterday, sooner than it was this morning. I'm praying that you'll come to faith in Jesus Christ and surrender your life to him, receiving his good news. And then I want to remind you that time is marching every day towards that day of the Lord. So don't be unaware. Don't be unprepared. Hear the word of the Lord.
and respond to him. Let's pray together. By your providential design, Lord, here we are at this scripture with these people. Those in this room, those who are listening on the radio, those who are watching in some way a streaming of this service. And we recognize that your order has brought us all to this point and that you're graciously, patiently extending grace. I pray, Lord, that this would be the moment where people receive the good news of Christ who has come as our atonement, the sacrifice for our sin, the the payment, a penalty of sin he took upon himself, the one who knew no sin. And then he imputed by faith to us who will receive him, his righteousness. I pray this will be the moment that people will come to faith in Jesus and forever be made new. And I pray it will bring glory and honor to the Savior's holy name, in whom I pray, amen.